My guest for today is a multi-award winning producer, director, editor, writer, and filmmaker. They grew up in New York City's Bronx Borough, later migrating to Hollywood to pursue a career in entertainment. Their work today consists of films, documentaries, commercials, and music videos. They have over a dozen awards for both producing and directing, and have authored several books on filmmaking, which can be found on Amazon. They also teach a course in filmmaking at Los Angeles City College. Mr. Andre Campbell. Welcome to the show, Andre. Hey, Marco Pars. Long time no see. I know. So nice to see you, man. You, you, you so inspire me. Let me take off my glasses uh, now that I read that introduction. Uh, you so inspire me because you were kind of uh, creating... You know, I have to backtrack a little bit because... I had always thought before uh, I talked to you about doing this interview, I had always thought you were an actor that kind of evolved into different things like producing, writing, and directing. But that really never was your intent. You had always wanted to be a a filmmaker. Uh, But I'm not going to get too ahead of myself. So uh, I'm going to start from the beginning. You were originally from from New York. And and, uh, what was it like for you growing up in the Bronx in the 60s and 70s? It was fun. Uh, we, we had fun. You know, um, we weren't on hard time. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, but uh, I had a fun childhood. Uh, and even today, I you know, I could still do stuff as a, uh, you know, as a kid. And people go, how'd you know? I said, yeah, I have a yo-yo. I got a hula hoop. You know, I got stuff that I could still mess around with. Uh, that I learned as a kid that I'd like to practice with every once in a while. But yeah, you know, I was born in Harlem, actually. Oh, okay. All right. Most people don't realize I was born in Harlem, Mm -hmm. lived on 120th Street. Uh, Actually, I lived at 139 West 120th Street. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what my production company is called, 139 West Productions, Mm -hmm. because of that. Then we moved to the Bronx when I was about 10. And that's where I grew up and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was. Um, well, it was a pretty it turbulent. Was a it was pretty a turbulent time in general, though. Was it just because you were a kid that you weren't really feeling the effects of it? I mean, there were protests going on, Black Panther marches, uh, a lot of civil unrest around that time. But it, was it because you were a kid? Was it just kind of over your head? Yeah, well, our my, my mom wasn't into that stuff, so it didn't come into the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was on TV was on TV, but... Um, yeah, uh, even now when I, you know, I watched that movie Gangster that Denzel played when he was the uh, drug dealer guy. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching the movie and they showed the time, I went, wow, I was in the Bronx when this guy was doing that stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of this stuff was happening around, huh. but uh, you never knew because it was happening in the other borough. Huh. Or, you know, but yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, um I wouldn't give it up for the world. It was a good training ground. Huh. Well, that's great. You you had a wonderful childhood. What were you a popular kid growing up? I was okay. Um, what helped was uh, no, I played sports. Playing basketball and and all the sports uh, kept me away from gangs and stuff like that and being really bad. Well, you know what? I don't think kids were bad. A lot of times they would bored, had nothing to do, and end up doing something you know like stealing and stuff because it was something to do. Hmm. Uh, I could have done that because it's like, hey, where'd you get that jacket from? Oh, we got it from this place. We're going back next week. Yeah. Can I go with you? And it would be something like that. Mm -hmm. And you just go with them and 
Did they have some, any boys clubs available to you or boys and girls clubs available to you to kind of wasn't the boys, it wasn't a boy. It wasn't called the boys and girls club. It was called the boys club. It was um, actually across the, across the street from Fordham university in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. We take the bus up there. They had all these pool tables and basketball. So we played that. So we'd get on the bus, go all the way up there. Yeah. It was one straight line. Um, and we go to the boys club up there. Huh. Uh, uh, as a a young child, like under ten, other than pool and basketball, if you were playing at that age, what were what were some of your other favorite games to play as you were growing um, up? I have to say one thing that when I was about seven, eight, I was playing softball. Hmm. We played with the uh, uh, the rubber softball mm-hmm. that when you would hit it would deform into an egg as it was going <laughs> into the outfield. Huh. Um, and then I look at the kids who are seven and eight and nine today, and I'm like, geez, I was more athletically inclined at that age than they were. Um, we used to play a game. Uh, we used to go to the school park, and we would play uh, uh, stickball. So I was playing stickball when I was in single digits. Hmm. Uh, we used to play a game called Roly Poly, and I used to try to find out if anybody else knew the name, but I think I found it on Snopes or one of those um, but nobody knows what, what the game was. Uh, it was a baseball game called Roly Poly. Huh. Yeah, and uh, I looked it up and I found it somewhere. And I go, yes, I'm not lying. It does exist. Well, having yeah. been someone with uh, above average uh, athletic ability, I'm I'm kind of getting from you. Was there any point where you were actually thinking about uh, uh, being a professional athlete? Hey, everybody did that. Mostly. When I was in Harlem, we watched wrestling. And um, my mom, my stepdad, wrestling. The, at the time, they were called midgets. They would wrestle, but they're little people. Huh. But they didn't use that term back then. Yeah. Uh, and, and dwarfs, dwarfism and stuff like that. They mm-hmm. just threw it out. But today, it's a little different. Hmm. But that's what we grew up when I was in Harlem. But when I got to the Bronx... Uh, it was more baseball, basketball, and football. So I used to like the um, my football team at the time. I was a Dallas Cowboy guy, even though I lived in, even though we had the Jets and uh, the Jets and who else we had? The Jets, Giants, and somebody else. Giants, who? Giants, the Giants, the Giants and the Jets. Yeah, they played in New York. Uh, did but you? I like the Cowboys. And you like the Cowboys. Yeah, the Cowboys were a favorite with yes. a lot of people. I think it's the cheerleaders that that did it. I'm not sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I like baseball. Actually, baseball was, I loved playing baseball. It was my favorite, but I, I moved into basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played in high school for two years, played in, and then I moved to uh, Brooklyn College and I played there. And then I moved to, I left Brooklyn College and I went to another school in Boston where I played basketball there. And the reason why I went to that college, uh, I saw something that I liked was a, a video guy shooting a camera and that piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. And so also when I was in high school, the drum teacher, he wasn't my drum teacher, but he uh, was doing film and a bunch of us would go to his house and he had a film camera and he made uh, a little short film. I didn't know what it was called back then, uh, but that's what I remember. Hmm. Uh, and in junior high school, mm-hmm. I was, um, I got into, there was a photography class. I only was there for, uh, not too long, but I, you know, I was the first time shooting a, a, a film camp. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it wasn't mine, but we went to the school. So that's and when then, you go ahead. When I got in high school, um, 
this guy had a, it was called a porta pack. I saw him shooting camera here. We went to this thing he carried around his uh, shoulder and it piqued my interest. And so when after uh, I left uh, Brooklyn College after a year, um, some guy pointed out there was a school in, in Boston mm-hmm. that did TV production. So that's what I went into. And that was my major at the time. So that kind of goes into my next question of asking who some of your favorite teachers were. And I guess this gentleman would have been one of them because that kind of helped spark your interest in filmmaking and film production. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, a strange thing was um, when I was in high school, one time my high school coach, I was in the athletic office and he, Mr. Adams, he, he was, he was in, he walked into the office and he, he stopped and he looked at me and he said to me, you know, the entertainment, the, the entertainment business is a hard business. And then he walked off. I have no idea why he said that. And lo and behold, I got into the entertainment business. Hmm. Why do you yeah. think the entertainment business is such a hard business? And, and why is it that so many people want to get in it? Well, for me back then, I wasn't trying to get into the Hollywood or film or TV. I just wanted to work maybe at a studio, a channel two or channel four. In New York, it was a little hard because nobody was leaving that spot. So I just felt that maybe going to the West Coast um, that I could probably find more work than living in New York. Uh, lo and behold, um, Los Angeles like is a second market. So I didn't know that. I thought I could break in easier. But I was only interested in TV work, not necessarily working on a television show or stuff like that. And it was always production that you were interested in? At no time you were interested in actually being in front of the camera? No. Um, my first acting job was on a show called Infinity Factory back in New York because in New York I got into doing magic and magic shows for kids and stuff like that. I saw the became a street magician and I could handle, you know, a deck of cards. You know, I could do flourishes as they would say. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's hard to do that here. I have to stand up. So I learned how to do that stuff. And, um, you know, one hand cuts the whole now. It's a little hard to do that here, but yeah, cutting and stuff like that. Huh. And your hands have actually been featured in, in some prominent films. Yeah, I uh, uh, they used my hands for Eddie Murphy in one of his movies. Um, and basically I was doing what they call insert work. Because mm-hmm. I'd come back, you know, and we'd do insert work. Uh, they would put me in the same outfit. Uh, one time I did Chai McBride. He's a big guy. So uh, they put a pillow in the in the um in the suit because i think i had the same suit on or not the same one but one of them and they put a pillow in to give me that big look because when they shot me they only shoot me from the they only shoot you from the hands down from here mm-hmm. hmm. uh, they don't shoot you from up here and and how did you get into all that because like i said I just automatically assumed you were an actor that evolved into filmmaking and other things. And you, you've been able to make a significant amount of income and, and cover your insurance through union stand-in and extra work, which is no easy feat. 
how 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 did you manage? Well, how did it start, and then how did you keep it up? Because, I mean, that that's why I thought that you were originally an an actor. <laughs> no, no, um, that 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 show Infinity Factory was my first gig. I got paid, and the only reason why I got it is because um, I could do magic, and my friends, uh, the girl she knew knew that I could do magic. And her mother was the executive producer of the show. Mm-hmm. And so the script called for uh, uh, a character named uh, Iggy, Izzy. So my name was Izzy. And so um, I went and met her, showed up some stuff, and I got the part. Never knew anything about acting. This was my first time. And so um, I come home with the script, and I'm trying to learn it. And then I lose my voice. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. using the chloroseptic stuff, mm-hmm. trying to get it back. And mm-hmm. uh, eventually I did. So we went to Yonkers to shoot, which is, you know, other side, um, other end of the Bronx. And Yonkers is a different county. And so we shot there and um, I brought all my magic stuff because they didn't have it. So I brought all my stuff. We, we, I set it up for them. And the guy said action and I'm just doing the lines and stuff. Had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I'm probably stiff as a board. And so it was, we cut and then I'm setting everything up. And then the director comes in and says, I said, okay, we're going to go again. Oh, I didn't say that because I didn't know how to say that. I said, okay, I'm setting everything up. He said, oh, don't worry. We got it on the first take. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he says, you know, sometimes it's magic. You get it on the first take. Then I realized later that he was in a hurry to catch a plane. I go, okay, that's why he did that. Okay. Didn't give me a chance to put a second one in. I didn't even get a chance to get nervous because I was so busy trying to do this thing and just being a little robot and doing the lines with uh, her name was Renee Brown. Uh, and I, when I came to California, we connected uh, her and her husband. You know, they had a little um, ministry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she was there. And, you know, that was my first gig. And then eventually when I, you know, came out to California, um, looking for work in the TV station. And I actually worked here at Channel 9. It was called KHJ, mm-hmm. RKO station. And K-Earth, the radio station, was a sister. But I got a job there in the mailroom. That's how I started moving up. Hmm. Yeah. But you've, I mean, that was one job that you talked about that you got the infinity. But you, you've carved out a pretty substantial career for yourself. I mean, I'm, I, I, from what I can imagine and think of, you were able to make your health and pension on a number of years doing stand-in and background work. How did you get yeah, all yeah. that? I mean, there are people that would kill to be able to, to do that. <laughs> um, I was lucky. Um, I had a friend of mine, the actor Dorian Harewood. Um, we used to play basketball together. And one day he said to me, I... I well, I left Channel 9 because I, when I was at Channel 9, I did a couple of, I worked in a doc, documentary department. So that's when I got my foot wet with documentaries. I did two there with a guy named Phil Reeder, wonderful guy. I haven't seen him in a while, but I've uh, Facebooked him. So uh, that's where I got that start in that type of um, documentary experience. There. I, mean, I had the associate producer title, yay, at the time. Mm-hmm. But um, that ended. And so I was looking for work and my friend Dorian, a wonderful actor here with, he said, hey, Trey, if you were in a union, you could stand in for me. And I go, okay. So I make some calls and 
Yeah, how did I, you get in the union? That's another hard well, feat. <laughs> yeah, well, I made some calls, and the the um, the the people from the show, the assistant director, called me because Doreen gave him my name, and I signed up at Central Casting, and then I got on the show as a stand-in. I had no idea what that was about; had no clue. Uh, but there was five other standers on it, and they t- all took me under their wing. All the standers were white at the time, and Dorian was the only black character, and I was the only black. So working on that show, I didn't have a car. He used to come pick me up, bring me to the studios, and a lot of people used to tease me about that. Hmm. And then one time, he wasn't working. He'd pick me up, bring me back, bring me home. So that's what he did. Had no car. The thing was, nobody told me you needed a car here. I had no clue. Because, you know, living in New York, I didn't need a car to get around. So it started with that. So we worked on the show for about a month, made a lot of money. And then um, they were given I a lot of make... money back in those days. Now they're tight. Yeah. But at one time, they were just throwing money at people. Yeah. People have houses, double uh, yachts and stuff like that. A lot of the crew, they, all these overtime, triple time, golden time. But the show ended. And then I had to make a choice. Did I want to get into the screen extras deal at the time? So I said yes to that. And then I, um, I think I bought myself a, a scooter. They had that, uh, that, those scooters, Honda scooters that came out. And Grace Jones, and I think Devo was doing the commercials. And I bought that scooter. And that's how I got around to the studio. So I, I joined the union. Um, and the people of the, that show was called uh, Glitter. Moved me over to the next show with them. The UPM brought me over to the next show. And so I was standing in for uh, another actor, but the problem was the actor didn't have a car. And so Alexander Folk was working with me at the time. You might've seen him. He was a dad in um, Dream Girls. And so he was there and um, he took over my spot. He called me, he asked me, he said, listen, Andrea, uh, if you don't want me to take it over, I said, hey, you can take it over. I'm fine. You know, I don't have a car to pick up the, the actor. And so uh, the UPM came up to me and said, Andre, don't worry, we'll work you. I worked more times. They would call me. I, they, I played a cop. So I was in all the scenes. And one scene I was in where I was chasing the bad guy down, down um, some escalator. And then I get a call and they said, uh, we want you to come do some um, uh, loop. And I, I didn't know what that was. Or ADR, you know, additional dialogue replacement, looping. And so I said, okay. So I went in and um, I watched the scene and I see me come into the frame and run down the escalator. And then um, before I did that, I had to say, freeze. I think it was freeze, hold it. And I did it like four times mm-hmm. and that was it. And after that, I was able to get into these, the, the, the SAG, the mm-hmm. Screen Actors Guild, because I was in SEG. When they had two got unions at S-A-G. that time. S-A-G. Yeah. So S-E-G today it would be background actors today. Well, now now S- what was S-E-G is like combined with SAG. They're like yeah. all one union. Yeah. Because yeah, we would call, you know, we were um, extras. Now they call them background actors. And now they're part of one union, which was, I wish they would have done it sooner. But um, I got in it. So the thing was, I found out that there were people in the business for years trying to get their SAG card. Mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. it in a month. <laughs> uh, 
Well, you definitely seem like you have a guardian angel looking over you because yeah, things just seem was... to kind of fall in place. And props to Dorian. Uh, I, I don't know him at all, but another friend of mine, Ernest Harden Jr., holds him responsible for being cast in uh, what was a very significant role for him playing opposite Betty Davis. And that came from Dorian's uh, recommendation. So that's a good brother, man. Uh, I oh, don't yeah. know him, but he's a good guy. You can. Yeah. Uh, I know this whole family. It's, 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 his family's like family for me. Go over there. You know, they just take care of me. You know? Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, and Ernest too. I know. We all used to play basketball on the same team together. You yeah. never played with us, but Ernest, Ernest could shoot. Dorian could handle and shoot. Yeah. And I was just having fun with these guys. But yeah, we uh-huh. played all, a lot of basketball in the same uh, basketball tur- uh, summit tournaments, six yeah. feet and under tournaments. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, six feet and under. So were your parents supportive of your move to Hollywood to pursue an entertainment career? Uh, yeah, my mom. We were just living with my mom at the time. My stepdad was not around, but he died. Mm. So, you know, it was okay with my mom. I know I said goodbye, and that was it, you know. Mm. I left my brother there, and, you know, he was he's nine years younger than me at the time, and he was there with mom. So I'd go back. I didn't go back for the first four years, or four years mm-hmm. when I lived out here. Uh, but I found that people who would move out here, they go back in six months, but I just wasn't doing anything yet because I didn't want to go back home and people would say, what are you doing? Mm. I said, nothing. And mm-hmm. they said, well, you could have stayed here and done nothing. <laughs> so once I started getting into the business and being on television, because mm. I, I was working a lot, um, you could see me on you know, a lot of the shows. Yeah, I remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, even if I was just walking by. Sometimes people say, that's, what do you do for a living? I said, I make crosses for a living. That's said, a what pic- do you mean? I cross from A to be and backwards and again. that and that's a good paycheck yep yeah <laughs> uh w- what are some of the changes that that you have noticed taking place in the industry from uh uh the time that you started to now uh, what happened was it, it it shifted in the 90s we were like a fat cat and then all of a sudden uh the producers knocked the ladder out from under us hmm. um, our pay got dropped uh, and it had to build back up and so uh, that was a sad time but I do understand that I think the problem was that you know when it comes to uh, the contract the union that I was in at the time SEG before SAG the union at the time that I was in uh, um, SEG uh, was I, at the time was to me was a fat cat. They got all the, the all the things that they wanted. I mean, we used to have night premiums and stuff like that. A lot of the other unions didn't have. Hmm. And I always thought that um, if we would have given up some of those things to match the the other guilds, the union, I, I think we would have been around a little longer. Hmm. But that didn't happen, and then the contract chains, the producer said no. And it was we we couldn't strike, mm-hmm. you know, because they were just bringing non-union, which they did. Hmm. And because of that, they split it where um, they started allowing non-union workers to come in. Hmm. And and the union, uh, we used to get like sixty-five union people for a TV show. Then it dropped it like to twenty, and that included standards. So uh, it was a big chunk uh, that was taken out. 
and it slowed up working. So it couldn't work as much as uh, on in shows a lot. Because a lot of times we could do the same show and come back and sometimes you just put your back to the camera. They didn't know who you were. Because the active, one actor is supposed to be in New York and you could be in that scene. You know, we shot everything in Los Angeles. And then the other actor was in um, uh, uh, somewhere else. Uh, but in the same show. And because um, I had a friend of mine who was a cop, he was a he was a uh, henchman on Hunter and he stood up on Hunter. And then they cut to the the police station and he's in the police station with his back to the camera because we, we were so um, good back then that we, we could make things work. You, know, mm-hmm. you couldn't tell that we were the same person in the same scene. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, back in the 90s, uh, after White Man Can't Jump, that's when everything went downhill for mm. us. When did you get into storytelling um, as a writer, producer, director, editor? When I was in college, um, I, it was a TV major college and we had to write stuff. And I, and I did, um, that was actually the second time, that, that would be the first time I was working with a film camera. Because one day I was thinking about it and realized, wait a minute, I was doing film in the, in, in, uh, the late 70s. Because it never dawned on me. And then one day I'm thinking about it and go, yeah, I shot this um, I shot this thing for class with the film camera in the park. Um, and then I did this uh, this stop motion um, um, film, short film for my class where I had these guys uh Can you, can you explain other. to everyone what stop motion is? Um, at the time, what it was is that I'd have the actor, he would only move a little and I'd take a couple of frames of shot, which takes a long time. And then when you put it together, it's it's like hmm. going across the frame. So what happened is they would pretend there were cars. They would sit on the, the the street and be like a car. And all of a sudden you see their butt and legs just going across the uh, the um, the road, chasing after each other and stuff like that. So that took a while. And I had some guys from the uh, the school to help me out. And I had to figure it in my head. Hmm. And so I had to figure out how to make it end. So they, they, they were chasing, racing each other. And I had to figure out how to come to an end. And I said, okay, we come down this ramp and there's this pole. And you hit the pole and you fall over. I'll do that in slow motion. And we would end the thing. And then I went to the pole and I had a pen or maybe like a almost a Sharpie. And then I, I made a mark where the, the, the pole sort of, the eyes opened up and a smile came up on it. Huh. And so that's how it ended. Huh. But the problem was I was in Boston at the time and they had different rules back there. So I was in my friends in the dormitory and I had the camera and I was getting, you know, take the film out and I was going to have it developed. But before I had it developed, my friend had a little uh, uh, Playboy book. And so I took one shot, one frame with the camera and I sent it out. And when I got my uh, film back, they blacked out the last part of it. Hmm. Wow. All the blacked out with that just one frame. Hmm. Hmm. Um, have you always been naturally technologically savvy? Because you, you, it seems that. Yeah. Like, yeah. You... Yeah. I, I always felt that. Um, um. Yeah, I like little puzzles. I like that. You know, I didn't get to do it a lot, but yeah, it always interests me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Even music videos. I remember I'd be in my mom's house, you know, growing up in the projects because uh, we grew up in the projects in the Bronx. Uh, 17th, uh, we're on the 17th floor 
in the Bronx. And um, I used to watch uh, or listen to um, the, the albums that my mom had and my brother had. And I used to actually fantasize about doing music videos back then. Didn't know what that was, but I would, you know, I would see the, uh, I listen to with album War and it would dun, 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 dun. And then I would go, okay, that sounds like a race music. And then the Indian, the Indians at the time or Native Americans was chasing the guy. So that would be popping in my head. So that's what I would do. Um, I just did it lightly. Nobody knew. It was just something I did. And it was just in here and, hmm. you know, what, and you just needed, uh, you just, at the time, you sort of needed a um, somebody to look up to, somebody in the neighborhood who did something like that, so you can gravitate to that. And there was really nobody. You know, mm-hmm. it was all on my own doing this. Now you say projects. Uh, do you go back to the Bronx to visit ever uh, so often? Um, yes. Um, up in, yeah, up until uh, up until COVID and the, the year before. My mom, um, we we uh, we moved into a house when I was in my early twenties, and so uh, I left there to come to Los Angeles, and you know, and I would come back every year for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And then up until a couple of years ago, my mom passed away, and my brother, who was living there, he, he we found him. Um, he passed away in the house during the, the COVID year, mm. um, and so. There was no more reason to go back to the Brock. We still have the house right now, trying to, uh, we're selling it, but, you know, it's it's sad. Uh, hmm. What what you know. kind of changes have you noticed from when you were growing up in the Bronx to today? Um, more traffic, uh, more dirt. Uh, uh, when I would go back, parking was uh, was not the same. You know, when I was there, it was easy peasy. Now, all the kids who were little when I was there, they all grew up and they all got cars. So if somebody had four kids in the family, they got three cars, one car in the driveway for the dad and and say the other four cars are out in the street taking up more spaces. So things have have changed that much. Um, More traffic, more congestion. Um, they started putting lines down. It used to be, uh, it was up in the Bronx, near Park City. So it was an open community, a, a neighborhood. Uh, now, now, when people like he- hear the word project, they think of crime and a lot of negative things. But it seems like you grew up in a pretty good uh, environment, even though it was the projects. Is the project still today a, a pretty good environment for a kid to grow in? Or does it um, now lead more towards that stereotype? Uh, where I was in the Bronx on 169th Street, the project was good. We didn't really had, um, there was a, a gang, I think the, the Little Spades or something like that. Uh, but, you know, it didn't bother me or our friends. A lot of us were playing sports a lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys look up to people who play sports. Hmm. You know, they could go do what they, uh, rob somebody, but come to the gym and watch you play. And, mm-hmm. You know, hmm. and get entertainment at the time. But um, no, it wasn't that bad in, in our projects. I can't say that for other projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we you know with our projects we have uh, um, cops. Uh, we have uh, housing cops for our projects, and they walk around and go up the steps. And you know, you get to know them. Mm-hmm. And and one guy used to tell me that you know, he would come down the steps, uh, and he would take his um, baton 
and he hit it against the wall as he's coming down. And I asked him, why did he do that? He said that he just want to make sure that if anybody down there, he's just letting them know he's coming down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that if you're doing something bad, just walk away. I'm coming down. I'm coming down. So get lost. Yeah, that's what he used to do. And I used to walk around swinging the baton with the, the uh, rawhide strap mm-hmm. and they just flip it around. And then the cops here were good. You know, they let you, some of them were black. So they were, they grew up there. So. Well, you, so, you have you know, black cops now even causing a lot of uh, violence against people unjustifiably. It seems like that that is a much better approach though. I wish we could get more back to that where you have these uh, officers that patrol a certain community and get to know the community where now it's like seems more like military people that you don't even know coming in there and telling you what to do and 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 uh frisking you and you know searching you uh without any reason uh why do you think we've gotten away from that and it is more where these police are in these communities they don't know anyone there and it's a whole different kind of thing well i I think the with my help, if, if somebody becomes a cop in Los Angeles, you should live in the city of Los Angeles mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for at least five years. Mm-hmm. And then he can move out to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. I, I just think they should do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another thing, I think it's they, if they hire people who are in the service, you know, somebody who's done two, three, four tours, and they have a certain mentality uh, that they're trained. And then they, this person comes and becomes a cops, and I think they have the same atta- mentality, and it it uh it comes with them. So I, I just think uh, maybe better um, choosing of cops, you know, mm-hmm. going through therapy and making sure that this guy is not a time bomb. Yeah. Or and so, don't yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it's a tough job, and I personally think policemen should be on six months and off six months just to uh, unwind. And, 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 but, you know, unfortunately that's not the case. And, you know, you have these people that, uh, but, but I'm going to go back to the, the storytelling, your storytelling. What do you think are the ingredients that make a good story? What makes for good content? Um, Something that's may have a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, Something that I think most important, if you find something or you write something, and if it means something to you, then you go with that. Or you use collaboration and you find something that somebody else writes. You don't have to write everything yourself. You know, I don't think Spielberg writes everything himself. He gets other people who are good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you, you know, if I want well, when I used to shoot something, I found, you know, I got tired of shooting. I found this guy who loves shooting the camera. So he started working with me. Mm-hmm. So when you find people who do that, that's fine. But when it comes to the story, you um, you just got to find something that tickles your fancy. You know, you go, hey, this could make, this could be something. This So that's why you see a lot of stories um, in the films. Um, and when you realize that it was uh, it comes from a book mm-hmm. because it was uh, somebody reads this book and I go, I can make this into a movie hmm. or the book moves them where they cry or, or there's all kinds of this emotion. And then they want to take this emotion from this book and share it. Mm-hmm. And so 
a lot of people um, uh, they look for books, they look for the adapt stuff. Not everybody can write stuff. Some people are wonderful at it, but yeah, it's just something. If you find something that tickles your fancy and you want to share it, and it's feasible and possible to get mm-hmm. it done, mm-hmm. because just because you have a vision. And you try to go to the studios or get somebody to fund it doesn't always work because they don't see it, and you got to prove to them that you can handle it or get them to see it. Mm-hmm. You know that's why you hear people. Yeah, it took me ten years to get this done. Hmm. Did you ever take any classes in writing, producing, directing, editing, or did you just kind of figure it out? No, in in, in college we had uh, three TV studios, so I was editing in college. I, I, I know you're a big advocate of learning by doing. Yes, yeah. And that was the my college name. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to uh, this uh, school in Boston, Graham, a couple blocks from Emerson. And, you know, they had studios. So that's where I started editing. And then I was also um, videotape editing there. And I was also editing film because I had to cut it, slice glue it so you know it's a small uh, super eight mm-hmm. matter of fact i still got the super eight camera with me today it's a simple uh, so i've this camera uh is 40 something years old do you keep it like just because you want you you may want a certain look that only that camera will give you no it was something i it's nostalgic yeah yeah um and one thing i did i um uh, i took the batteries out because uh, the batteries were in for a while, and I just opened them up one years ago and went into, and you got to take the batteries out because they start the batteries start to go bad, mm-hmm. and it'll mess up everything. They'll just corrode everything. Mm-hmm. So I got the batteries out in time, cleaned it up, and you know, okay. But um, there's not too many film places, Super Eight, but there's one in the valley that I think is called Pro Eight Millimeter or something like that. That I want to go over there and get a, a some tape. I mean, some film in a cartridge and just go out and see if it still works. But mm-hmm. yeah, I still have my, uh, my first film camera. That's what uh, Spielberg so, yeah. started on. Yeah, I think. Film. yeah. So I was shooting film back, you know, in the seventies. Huh. That's like why, that. why I'm so impressed by you because you were doing all, I mean, now it's so much easier to create your own content, but you were like doing it before it was so easy. Uh, who are some of your favorite storytellers and why? Um, well, you know, we grew up with a lot of um, storytellers who are white, and now over the years we're finding um, that there are black storytellers or storytellers of African descent that are just as wonderful. But the thing was that our school never pointed those people out, which was sad. Hmm. Uh, and, was you your know, school mainly black or mixed? No, or? mixed, white, yeah. mostly white. Yeah, mostly white. Yeah, college. Hmm. Um, you know, and the thing today is that black history is history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just black history. It's American history. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and they didn't teach us that back then. Hmm. And, not at all. And, and um, it looks like nowadays they don't want you to learn about it now either. Yeah. You know, all but these it's, things you know, being it's banned. history. Yeah. Uh, That's why I'm, I'm a member of a, a black documentary group. Here in Los Angeles for years called badwest.org. Hmm. Uh, once you black association, of, I'm sorry, it was the Black Association of Documentaries West, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, 
thank thank goodness they're there because who who's going to tell the story of if they don't yeah <laughs> or our tell, our, tell stories our, our stories if they don't yeah uh yeah. once you got into hollywood uh did you find it everything that you had dreamt it would be <laughs> no, you know what i had no uh uh pre notions about anything i just came here and they say hey it's some people somebody and people have asked me why did you come to los angeles and I would jokingly say, hey, this is the farthest place I could walk without drowning. <laughs> uh, and what did you find after being here and spending some time here? What did you find to be the realities of Hollywood and pursuing a um, career in entertainment? First of all, first of all, the summers, it was like it didn't rain. And I'm like, wow, living here as a kid would have been wonderful because you can go and play back mm -hmm. east when it's snow and rain you can't go out and play try yeah. to play basketball it, 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 football in the cold and have somebody throw it to you those things hurt when you try to catch it. <laughs> huh. but out here um it was just different um closer to the beach uh, otherwise i would have to go to coney island and get to the beach with uh my mom and, and our family um a lot of palm trees um clear skies smog uh, people were okay, friendly. And hmm. so it was like a new adventure. Hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I didn't have any um, notion of what I wanted. Well, I did know I wanted to work at a TV station. And I got to. So I actually worked at two. I worked at ABC. And I cut the news there. I was a, a, a tape editor. Mm -hmm. And I worked at Channel 9, which is a mailroom all the way to documentaries. So I know it was a very short period of time because things fell into place rather quickly for you. But what were some of the other things that, that you needed to do to, to make ends meet when you first came out to Hollywood? Oh, my first job was at the Ramada Inn in Culver City. I was a, a banquet waiter, which was sort of cool. If people didn't show up and there was a plate of food left, we used to eat it and then take home food. Because they used to make us, yeah, just bring the plate, bring it. Bring the uh, the thing back, mm -hmm. and that's how you know we eat. But that was my first job here, and then I, when I moved into Hollywood, we got a job at the YMCA in Hollywood, and I started teaching basketball to the YBA because mm -hmm. I played a lot of basketball. So I was a YBA coach, and so uh, uh, I had the kids, and we would play. And with me, um, I was more. I just want to have fun. And one of the other parents who was teaching, he was like, uh, he would be coaching and I look at him and he was about to bust a, a vein. So yeah. I didn't coach that way. I said, no, we're going to have fun. Go ahead. Do you miss it? No, nah, that's okay. And he go, he would be screaming at the kid. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how my college coach was in, in Brooklyn. He would be screaming. <laughs> and I just sit at the end of the bench drinking Gatorade. Said, I was an end. You didn't play me. So don't be like don't be rah 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 me. Well, I didn't my, get a chance to play yet. You rah rah those guys. My feeling is he had issues that 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 went beyond the basketball court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are you a producer, writer, director, editor that just does that on things you're interested in, or are you like for hire too? Like if someone comes to you and has something they want produced. You can, yeah, some uh, I, yeah, I'll run the gamut. 
yeah. you could hire me because you know I got a little knowledge. Mm-hmm. And how, yeah. how has the, the landscape? Uh, how has the landscape for content creators changed over time? Um, what has happened is that um, all this equipment today made it affordable, and these content creators they're jumping and trying to hit the ground running. Uh, for us, we learned on a foundation, and a lot of these guys are. Um, getting stuff and then trying to make stuff, which is nice. But a lot of them don't follow the rules or they make up their own rules or um, the stuff that they spit out is not always good quality because they don't take the time to uh, do things. And so, but everything is now acceptable. So if you just do something stupid, clever or unclever, you can just put it up and share it. They call it sharing. Mm-hmm. That's what they do today. But um, there are some of them which do good work, and then some of them don't. You know, it's um, everybody wants to make a film today out here because mm-hmm. they they want to make money. Mm-hmm. They realize that if they do that, this will bring them a lot of money, a lot of income. Um, it's hard to tell if somebody is doing stuff today out of the goodness of their heart or because it's their passion. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of these guys doing this stuff. It's not passion. It's just work, or it's just something they do. Trying to make a buck. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, where do you get your writing ideas and inspiration from? Um, it comes from different places. One time, I was watching a a Korean. It was on early days of Hulu. I was watching this Korean show, and it was subtitled. So I was watching it, and there were the guy was doing something from the future, stuff like that. And so because of watching that, I came up with, um, I'd made a little short film called Future Killer, where a guy comes back from the, the future to tell his present-day self not to do something bad hmm. because the future guy, I guess, has remorse about it. Mm-hmm. And that came from watching something. And sometimes... Um, uh, one time somebody uh, sent an email and it was a joke and I liked it so much. I, I turned it into a short film so it could come from anywhere because you know, I go, hey, I like this. And so uh, I did that. In mm-hmm. And I think I won a director's award for that, you know, for it. But yeah, that's where that one came. Hmm. And one of the things about that is that I was editing it and we were, we were shooting a scene in the bathroom and they had a lot of mirrors in the bathroom. And when I was editing, I realized that when I stopped and I was looking at the frame, I realized that, hey, that's me, <laughs> reflection. I think when I was leaning is... against it, you could just see this part of me, but I wasn't moving. Uh-huh. So I was just leaning against it, and I looked up and go, wow, that's me. And so nothing I could do. So a couple of months later, I'm in a festival. We're at the movie theater, Crescent Heights. It's being shown in the theater. It's a bigger screen, and I'm sitting there a little nervous, and I'm like, why am I nervous? <laughs> so it pops on, and that scene comes up, and so everybody's watching here, and I'm watching over here, <laughs> and I see myself. But the action is over here. So um, it was all on me, but nobody even noticed that was me. <laughs> I think everyone shooting in a bathroom with mirrors has gone through that at least once. 
Yeah, I've learned, you know, one of the things is you learn from your mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. You learn by doing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you prefer uh, your actors to follow the script or do you allow them to improvise uh, to a certain um, extent? I like them to follow the script. What I would do is um, follow what I wrote or follow what's on the script. And then I'll say, hey, you want to do it another way? You give them, you give them some warm fuzzies. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you have the time, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not pressed for time, mm-hmm. but you can, I'd say, Hey, what you know, I'll talk to them and say, you want to try something different. Mm-hmm. Hey, you never know what they bring. And sometimes in rehearsal, you, um, you let them have the floor and see what they bring to the scene and you just watch them. So the idea is that as a director, you, it's like you reel them in. If they give you too much of that, you reel them in. Mm-hmm. Or if they don't, you, you give them a little line. Mm-hmm. take them in that direction but most of the times um most actors uh will bring you what you need and you're just there to to direct them block them um and then go from there but you you, you give your you know give your actors a, a chance to um to uh work the scene because mm-hmm. you know you never know what they're going to bring but you know some people don't work that way because sometimes What's in the script is gold. But, you know, if you got the time and they want to give it a shot with something, then, you know, let them do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes them, I think, it gives them a chance to be creative on their own or mm-hmm. extra creative. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then, they, you know, and then and it makes the working experience and the working or, or the working together um, uh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes a better experience. And when you have better experience, you have better creativity in, in making a, uh, your project. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What's the most difficult part of creating content? The most difficult part of creating content? Uh, trying to control everything. It's, you know, it's not always. Um, I go by a credo that all mistakes are made in pre-production. And what that means is that you need to think about, talk about everything that you're going to do later on in production so that when you get over there, uh, you don't have any missteps. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to, uh, I was, it was not my show, but I worked on a show where we we're uh, in the back of the person house and they had a, a big light there. And the guy came out, you know, we shot overnight. So the owner came out screaming, because I think they were plugged into his in his um, electricity, so they, they had to give him some extra money. Because he was thinking that he's going to have this big electric bill. You know, we're only there for that one day. Mm-hmm. Out of thirty days, mm-hmm. it's not going to be that much. Mm-hmm. But you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to, you know, you give him money, or uh, somebody's cutting the grass, and mm-hmm. you give him money to shut him up for the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to shoot somewhere, you. Uh, Make sure that there's not going to be another production company a block, up the block making the same noise that, that you're making. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is that you, you try to figure out things ahead of time before mm-hmm. start doing things. Uh, you want to take care of the actors, make you know, make everybody happy, make your crew happy because a lot of times the crew goes as a director goes, so they follow your lead. If you're doing good stuff, they want to do good stuff. If you're a director that's yelling and screaming and making everybody miserable, mm-hmm. 
they don't want to do. You know? So I, I think, um, you know, just being more prepared and, um, you know, being professional about it mm-hmm. and treating everybody, you know, decently. Have you ever worked with Michael Bay? No. Because I've heard some nightmare stories about him, and I was just kind of curious when you said making sure everyone's happy. I've heard he's quite a yeller and screamer. But anyway, since you haven't actually worked with him, I'll, I'll, I'll skip that. Uh, <laughs> what's your, your workflow or, or schedule like when you're working on a project? Like from the beginning of the day to the end of the day? Well, actually, my last project I did, was I shot a... Um, uh, uh, a stand-up special, mm-hmm. and and um, that takes a while because it's just me. I, I don't have any other producers, so I got to do a lot of the work and make you know bringing everything together. Uh, it's like uh, making a cake, going to the store as a producer. You get all the ingredients, and most of the times you give it to the director, and the director will make the cake for you. Mm-hmm. And then you look over the shoulder, say, "Hey, a little more nutmeg." A little more sugar. Hmm. The producers will do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Or the director makes the cake and he leaves it, and you may add more cream and sauce, put some uh, bananas on it, and say, hey, that's not my cut. You know, but, um, yeah. Someone comes to you, wants you to produce this piece of content for them. How do you make a boring subject interesting? <laughs> If you find it boring, you shouldn't take it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you uh, you, yeah, have, you to have to take it. Be invested in it somewhat in an emotional level. Even if someone's paying you, you have to be somewhat uh, emotionally invested in it. Yes, it helps with the process. If you're not in, unless you need to pay rent, mm-hmm. yeah, it's one thing. But if you, if if you, if it's something that you can find that you are invested in, then that's fine. If you, if you're doing something that you're not you should walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which which do you find? Which do you enjoy the most of, of of all your many hats? Writing, producing, directing, or editing? You know, I like them all. Um, I, I think they all encompass the thing for me that everything starts. You know, I'm there when everything is starting its embryonic stages, and I like the idea of taking it to the end and completing it. And, and having a, a deliverable. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's how I feel about that. And and why is, and I believe you said this, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but why is documentary filmmaking considered more of a work of love? Um, you don't get paid for it as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can make a living off of doing that. There's only a handful of people who can do that. So it should be a work of love. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people may do it on the side. They may have other jobs. And there are people who have taken 10 years to put together a documentary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's a, it's, it should be a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, narrative films are also a, uh, a, um, a labor of love for some people. Mm-hmm. But you know you get you get paid for that. But I think documentary is is just a different type of labor of love. Hmm. You know, it's, it's um, and it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, hmm. it's a different type of uh, genre. Hmm. 
what's your definition of a rough shoot? Um, having a long day. Uh, things may not be going right. Not, not making your day. Uh, when you realize that, uh, I've got too many scenes. And so you just can't cut words. You've got cut scenes out. You're trying to make your day. You just got to cut stuff, you know, mm-hmm. cut scenes. Mm-hmm. Especially when there's money on the line. Because, you know, you can't keep going out, you know, too much in overtime. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. yeah. You just got to learn to shoot quicker. You got to learn to shoot quicker sometimes. Yeah. Huh. How have uh, past experiences impacted the way that you produce content today? I take my time. Um, you know, it's, I want to massage it a lot more, uh, mold it into something that will work. Now, just because it works doesn't necessarily mean the finished project is going to work, but the idea is that you want to get it to, hopefully, to get it to work and get to that point. Hmm. It's interesting how things can change so much just by editing. You know, people can come up with a whole other movie just by editing. (laughs) Yeah, well, most, most of the times you follow your script. And then a good editor can look at the script and say, hey, boss, if we took these two scenes and put it over in front of these two scenes, move that scene over here. And then the guy will go, no, that's not, wait a minute. Let me play it for you. And they play and he goes, wow, that still works. That's amazing. I didn't ever thought of, because a lot of times they're, they're focused on, it goes from A to mm-hmm, B mm-hmm. to C to D. And you try to tell them. That may be so, but the way it's shot and what we have here, if you put D in front of B and so-and-so, you have a different story. Mm-hmm. Even with documentaries, they will redo it. Mm-hmm. You know, start, uh, start it from the middle of the story mm-hmm. or start it at the end of the story or start it at the beginning of the story in a chronological order. Mm-hmm. Just So the idea is that you can take a documentary uh, and move it around and get a different story. In a narrative, you could do the same thing and move it around and realize that, boy, this works. Now we got something we can show people. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch, because I'm not Julia's son, not anymore. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch, because I'm not Julia's son like I was before.